Hello and welcome to the Mania Podcast, a production of the Grimm Theatre. What makes somebody a monster? Just how deep do the roots of one's past reach, dictating what or who we become? Today we are visiting the life and crimes of a man whose very being came to be synonymous with the word fear. In the late 1920s, Germany, if you were walking home alone at night, this was the stranger whose silhouette you looked out for, the shadow in the alleyway that you hoped would keep its distance. Unfortunately for many of his victims, that silhouette, that shadow, crept a little too close. This is the story of Peter Kürten, the vampire of Dusseldorf. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and you are listening to the Mania Podcast. Before we get started with this episode, I want to thank the generous patrons of this show. Mania is ad-free, and I intend to keep it that way. So if you want to support stories like this one and other Grimm Theater projects, please go to patreon.com forward slash Grimm. Once again, that is forward slash H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N-G-R-I-M. Our patrons enjoy early access and exclusive content every month, including our array of circus and vaudevillian entertainment. Thank you all for making this possible. With that, let's continue. On a rainy spring night in 1883, Peter was pulled screaming into life in a dingy single-bedroom tenements. Surrounded by the clamor, steam, and fog of Mulheim's industrial district, Peter's mother held her newborn baby against her chest, unsure if she was relieved or terrified that he'd survived. His sticky warmth and first howls filled the room. Despite the overwhelming adrenaline, the heaviness in her bones for having brought new life into the world, already it was muddied by fear, nervousness, and uncertainty. But it was not for the world beyond him, or what dangers lurked therein, rather for the only other person in that room, looking on with expectant eyes to hold the newborn, his father. Over the course of his childhood, Peter would come to share that cramped single bedroom with twelve other children, twelve, making him the eldest of thirteen. These troubled beginnings would sow the first seeds of Peter's darkness. A beginning so treacherous that two of his siblings wouldn't survive the childhood at all. As for the others, well, some might suggest death would have been a mercy. The squalor that the children lived in would be the most bearable detail of their upbringing. The regular beatings and abuse from their father were commonplace and, unfortunately, just a footnote compared to the deeply disturbing acts he forced them to witness against their own mother. Tragedy, death, and the intense grief that accompanied each day were but playmates to these children. Their eyes harbored a tired darkness one might recognize in a soldier recently returned from war. For them, home was not a place to heal, but to be hurt. And just how a child is taught to love by their parents the Curtin children learned, instead, how to wound. All this proved too much for Peter. 
When home is a flourishing garden of suffering, abuse, neglect, and horror, the unknown becomes something not to fear, but to seek out. It started first with Peter's schooling. School was far preferable to home life, so he found himself lingering long after the final bell had rung. Dusk would often leave a bitter taste in his mouth. That was when the other children started to peel away. For them, it was time to go home for supper, to a loving embrace and a warm hearth. Not for Peter. For Peter, it meant another beating, or being forced to watch his father do the same, and worse, to his mother. When his classmates left for home, it was time to venture out into the city. With the light in the sky melting away, the gas lamps bloomed in its place, clouding the smoggy air with a deep, umber glow. Peter would leave home for days, even weeks at a time. And as he got older, he found his shadow being cast amongst social misfits and petty criminals. With them, he learned how to clothe and feed himself, how to survive, really. None of this was achieved through honest work, but instead thievery. There was no question of ethics in Peter's mind. How, how could there? As a young boy, he'd learned to numb himself to his own feelings, let alone those of others. Peter wasn't gifted with particularly handsome looks, either. His front teeth were a size too big compared to the others, and those watchful, dark eyes of his, for all the horror they'd already witnessed, were not so much wistful as they were unsettling. The term street rat might pop up into a stranger's head if they looked at him a little too long. He was flighty, reserved but ready for a scrap, quiet yet vicious if provoked. What has the world stolen from me? Peter would often ask himself. And that was all the justification he needed for the unkindness brewing in him. He felt the world could steal nothing from him after he was already born into a life robbed of everything. Revenge. This was a word Peter understood before all his other classmates. A word whose syllables were sweeter than any confection. And he believed he was owed it for the hell he was raised in, the torture he endured every day, and for the wrongs that society showed him when he gambled and lived far away from home. The question was, who would he exact this vengeance upon? Well, Peter didn't wait until he was an adult to begin satiating it. In fact, he was just nine years old when two of his classmates invited him to swim out on a river in the summer of 1892. After wading out far in a log raft, the conversation between the young boys grew quiet. Peace was not something Peter knew very well. It made him uncomfortable. Whenever a quiet moment crept around, it always managed to bring with it questions and memories he hadn't the courage to face. Why don't you go for a swim? Peter asked one of his classmates. I can swim. I already told you, he replied. Grabbing the oar? Peter used the end to nudge the boy off the raft before rowing gently to make sure he wouldn't have nothing to grab onto. The schoolmate yelped and thrashed, water gurgling in his mouth between screams. Peter watched on, grinning delightedly, while the remaining classmate on the raft shouted directions at his drowning friend, all useless, of course. When the boy started sinking, the other classmate dove in to save him. But before he could make any meaningful effort 
Peter swung the oar around, catching it flat against the side of the would-be savior. Dazed by the blow, the child fought only to be held under, this time directly by Peter's hand. It wasn't long before the flailing limbs subsided, the thrashing ceased, and Peter was left alone, watching his friends sinking away from him, their bodies less distinguishable by the moment, and before long, swallowed entirely by the gaping depths. Large, startled eyes, hollow mouths, and silent screams. That was the last he remembered of his friends. Even as a nine-year-old, Peter already knew. The authorities would believe whatever story he cooked up. After all, why would they trust the word of a dead child when there was a living, innocent one to tell them about the accident? What a terrible world, Peter thought to himself, paddling gently back to shore. At 13, Peter managed to cultivate a somewhat longer relationship with a girl, only to find the emotional demands of their connection to be too straining. He resorted to blind violence, and would take pleasure in inflicting pain on animals in local farms. Just a year later, at his father's insistence, Peter obtained employment in 1897 as an apprentice molder. That apprenticeship lasted two years, before it ended from the usual tendencies that Peter learned to rely on from a young age, he decided to run away from home, only this time taking all the money he could find from his father and approximately 300 marks from his employer, which back then was a substantial amount of money. With the stolen funds, he relocated to Koblenz, a city on the banks of the Rhine, where he began a relationship with a prostitute. It wouldn't last long, though. Just four weeks passed before he was apprehended and charged with breaking and entering and theft, and subsequently sentenced to one month's imprisonment. Keep in mind, the boy is hardly 16 at this point. The summer of 1899 would see his release, sending him back to his old habits of petty crime. By late autumn, in November of that same year, Peter's spree would truly begin. It would not be the thoughtless, if not fatal, antics of a nine-year-old boy on a river. This would be the result of a matured, vile set of intentions, inspired by vengeful values and twisted logic. His first victim was an 18-year-old girl, who he persuaded to accompany him to a garden in the city of Dusseldorf. And it was there, after night had cloaked the scenery in shadows and turned their breath frosty, that he strangled her leaving the scene as unceremoniously as they'd come upon it. Something hollow in him had been satiated, but its hunger would surely only grow after. But for at least a brief time, Peter's bloodlust would be locked away. Except, it could be argued that this confinement only stoked his odious desires, his quest for vengeance that lacked a destination or final crowning act. Shortly after the first murder, Peter was arrested for fraud, theft, and other crimes that had followed his record in the city of Dusseldorf. There was even an attempted murder on the indictment. Still, there was nothing linking him to the first murder. But this time, it wasn't four weeks, but four years. So four years went by. 
Four years of spending weeks in solitary confinement, of being ostracized by other criminals, of fantasizing about what he would do once he was freed. In the summer of 1904, he was released, only to be drafted into the Imperial German Army, where he was deployed to the city of Metz in Lorraine to serve the 98th Infantry Regiment. By autumn, he'd deserted. And I suppose at some point during his imprisonment, Peter grew a love for fire. He spent much of that summer committing seemingly random acts of arson, which he would watch from a distance, savoring the panic, the fear and uproar as emergency services attempted to put out the flames. By the new year, Peter had committed 24 separate acts of arson. 24 times he'd watch eagerly from afar, hoping somebody would be caught sleeping in the fumes and would choke before making it out. 24 times that the flames kindled a kind of feeling in him that others might describe as joy, his dark eyes alight. All the while, the handful of souls he'd already taken, and the grief of those affected by the rampant destruction he'd caused, seemed to circle him like ghosts, and in their wails, their clawing at him, he grew a vindicated smirk, thinking only of the satisfaction of adding to that collection. Unfortunately for Peter, he soon felt a familiar sensation of gloved, uniformed hands grasping his arms firmly. On the 24th arson attack, Peter was spotted by a witness and swiftly reported. He was just across the street at a cafe, the only person who hadn't abandoned their table to watch or offer their assistance outside. Even after being tackled to the floor, he watched as a tenement, much like the one he grew up in, vomited blackened smoke from its windows. He looked, even as he was battered and beaten, while emergency services thronged around the building, rupturing glass and mangled screams erupting from the insides. An officer who participated in his arrest that evening recalled that the only thing Peter said was, and still it is not enough. Yet again, Peter's predilection for crime would see a long list of charges produced. The arson, robbery, and attempted robberies, as well as the desertion of that year, were all leveled against him. And if he hadn't lost all his inhibition by now, his next prison sentence would surely eradicate what was left. What little humanity Peter Curtin had during this time, and indeed, we will find there was some left would surely be gnarled, condensed, and mangled to something unrecognizable. For it would be eight years that he would be put away, eight years before the city of Dusseldorf would truly come to know the monster it had unknowingly created. Thank you for joining the Grim Theater for another episode of the Mania Podcast. This has been the first story of two concerning the Vampire of Dusseldorf. As always, select details and moments have been exaggerated for the narrative, but what separates fiction from history will be revealed after the story is concluded. To access exclusive and early content, writings, and episodes only available to supporters of the show, head on over to patreon.com 
forward slash Harlequin Grimm. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N-G-R-I-M. A link can also be found in my Instagram or TikTok bios. Once again, thank you for listening, and as always, the Grimm Theater is open to you.